All right, Christian Dagger, so nice to uh, see you again and talk to you again. So I was last in Munich, I think the end of November 2019, and of course we all know what happened a few months later, so haven't been able to visit in person, but nice to have you in the podcast. So what's been going on in your world of architecture lately? Also, uh, good to see you uh, again and talk to you, Juan, and thank you for the invitation. So what's going on in, in our architecture world? The, the things we are currently working on, uh, that we are improving uh, our maturity of the platform with, with regards to availability and disaster recovery. So this is a, a rather technical topic. And I'm currently in the way uh, to actually as in, in my new role um, as uh, head of platform to actually define the, the platform strategy and how the architecture and the platform capabilities are best organized to support the other teams and also solve the problem how to actually grow the platform. So that there are platform capabilities in place and initially when the platform was younger, a lot of the things that teams required were not available. So there was a lot of push for new requirements from the outside. So we were, the platform was more or less requirement driven. And now we are able to handle the core capabilities required by teams. So now the new challenges, how we change uh, the approach to grow the platform further. And one, one thing that, that's important for me is the term minimal viable platform. So I don't want to have a big platform that's growing just because there is a, a teams working on the platform and they're just adding and adding things to the platform without uh, providing the, the required value. So the platform should stay lean. And nevertheless, uh, we also want to be in charge of our own destiny, meaning that uh, our new approach, hopefully this plays out for the better, that we, we are trying to harvest capabilities from other teams, where, where teams are actually using capabilities that they built for themselves. And then we take those capabilities and make a proper product out of it. That's then a platform offering so that we reduce the, the cognitive load of the teams by, by taking those capabilities out and put it into the platform. So we have two flavors there, the tech platform, where we are talking about the infrastructure-related parts, so as we're on AWS, AWS automation and the delivery pipelines, monitoring, cost transparency, those kind of, of capabilities. But also we have a second part, which is called business uh, platform, where we have... Uh, core capabilities that's required in our business and there we are um, looking for for capabilities to to pull in and we we, we just started now the, the first initiatives where we actually are harvesting uh, those things uh, by actually looking at our customers and see what they use and then define a proper architecture and a, and a proper product out of this so I think at least in some places, the new newish term is quality attributes. I guess you're working on the quality attributes. We used to say more like the non-functional requirements, but that's not really the current good term to use. But lots of work to do that, especially kind of designing like a domain of failure. How many different ways can we fail and how do we recover from that and not bring down the whole platform? Yeah, so limiting the blast radius and also thinking about uh, how, how each team can individually recover without being dependent on each other. 
because if something breaks, uh, the worst thing that could happen is that you then have inter-team dependencies and you need to first recover that before that can be recovered and uh, then then everything is, is slowed down. So that that's, that's part of the thing. And actually, I never liked the term uh, uh, non-functional requirement, uh, but uh, the term from, from ThoughtWorks also did not really stick. Uh, they used the two, uh, term uh, cross-functional requirements, uh, which I like better, but quality attributes uh, also sounds good. I didn't hear that before in, in that uh, context, but yes, that, that's ac actually what we are looking for. And there's um, there are multiple quality attributes, and that's also uh, part of the challenge, uh, what quality attributes you need to bring to what level for your current business requirements and for your current maturity, because you always can overdo things. So when you talk about disaster recovery and availability, there are always some people that believe you need to have the availability of Google to, to be successful, but that's an investment we cannot make. So we need to settle for less and that that's also part of the, the learning there. So if we kind of like, if we were writing code in C, we might set jump to 2013 and then long jump back to 2013 when we first met. As I recall, what happened is you were an architect, some lead architect at uh, Auto Scout 24 in Munich. And I think you and Philip Gaba, yes. right? You're very good with names. <laughs> And he, uh, so you two invited me to teach, to do some training at AutoScout. And I think I also did a few days, maybe two or three days of consulting after the workshop. And I met many of your teams there. So it was a very fun time. But interestingly, this was a year when there was a tremendous amount of rain. I think it was all through Europe and maybe not unlike this past month or so. And it was not only rainy, but it was humid. And of course, the offices in Munich have no need of air conditioning, except during that week or month or something, and it was hot. I can totally remember uh, how you actually suffered through the workshop, this, this, and, and you rightfully so complained about uh, the conditions, uh, but sadly enough, this war, there was nothing we could do about Yes, in Germany and also in that office building, Air conditioning is not that common as it uh, is in the state, and it's typically also not needed. And we just have picked the hottest week of the years before and after that, and were crammed in a in a, in a rather big crowd in a, in a room. Uh, and I, I believe that the workshop was great, but people also. If, if the temperature would be lower, would have been more engaged and would have grasped more. This, this was just uh, worst circumstances to have such a... And, and by the way, Philip is uh, also joining me in, in, in my new endeavor and he's uh, working as a product owner in the tech platform I just mentioned. So we are still working together. I pulled him over. <laughs> That's cool. But he's no longer in the domain part of things. He since then flipped to the more infrastructure side of things. Yeah, I recall something about he was doing more DevOps work before. So if we take a little step forward in AutoScout, 
eventually you became the chief architect or a, I don't know how many chief architects they had, maybe one or maybe a few, but you became a chief architect at Auto Scout. And this was maybe the result of some good work that you did there. And so after the training, you went on this venture adventure, I guess, of breaking up the big ball of mud at Auto Scout 24, resulting in microservices. Can you tell us about that? Yes, certainly. So first of all, uh, about the, the chief architect, uh, there was only one. So uh, that, that uh, to, to clarify that one. And yes, so in, in, uh, in I believe as, as the workshop was in, in 2013, after that, so it, it was in the same year, uh, we at Autoscout had to make a, a decision around our tech stack. So we were running on, on Windows in the data center using .NET and uh, ownership of Autoscout changed and new questions were raised. And I believe the, the new owners didn't, didn't like Windows and .NET particularly, and also didn't like the, the aspect of having a rather big scale um, web presence in, in Windows technology in the data center. So they were more in favor of Linux and, and, uh, and a more Linux-based language. So this was the, the first trigger point where my manager just asked me, Christian, how do you see the, the future of .NET at Autoscout? And I said, I would rather move away from it. Okay, that's aligned with, with our top management. So from there on, we, we started a multiple conversations about how, how we can actually change things there. And in the end, we came up with a packet where we actually wanted to change everything at the same time. Everything that was viable to, to change, we wanted to put into this project, which meant uh, moving from Windows and, and .NET to Linux and the JVM using Scala as language. We then also said we don't make this transition in the data center anymore. When we do this, we, we also move to the cloud. We picked AWS for that. And when we are also moving to, to AWS, uh, uh, then we should re-architecture our monolith, which had some problems at that point in time. And microservices were just becoming the, the new thing. And this was actually when, when the microservice article from Martin Fowler came out, this was more or less the blueprint of the discussion we, we at that point in time had already internally. So this is where we where we believed we should head for and, and suddenly the article came out and it was putting putting a lot of uh, context and, and names in, in, into our thought process. And of course, when changing to the cloud, we also wanted to change our operating model. So we used to be uh, in, in two silos, the, the dev silo and then the handover to the operations silo. So they were then responsible for running the VMs and the .NET services in the data center. And we also wanted to change this to go uh, with a you build it, you run it model. And so we packed a lot of changes into that project. But in, in hindsight, it, it was a, a lot of things we did at the same time. So uh, there, there might have been a more simpler approaches to, 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 to skin the cat, but also um, all of those uh, changes also depended on, on each other. So we, we, we didn't want to run Windows on AWS. So this was a complexity we, we didn't want to have there. Every normal workload, you could read about on AWS is running on, on Linux. Why should we be the ones who are running on, on Windows and then have an operation team that runs things on AWS also feels wrong. So 
we stick with the idea, we put everything into this one project and, and start the transition. So, and during that project, this was also the time when I changed my role from being a team leader before that uh, into the role of an architect. And as then the project grew and, and uh, encompassed more of, of, of Autoscout engineering, um, then I also stepped up into the role of, of the chief architect there. Yeah, that's um, very good and, and good results because I'm sure they didn't ask you to be the chief architect because you failed. You know? <laughs> I mean, it must have worked out pretty well. I'm sure there were some glitches and a few things along the way, but you, you pulled through it, right? So how did that go? So from what I'm hearing, they're, they're still working in, on, on, on the same principle, the approach uh, when, when, when we started that transition. Are you now more interested in, in how we did the migration or in my role during that migration? Well, I think now it would be good to just talk about the how you did the migration, like what... So what we did, I believe in beginning of, of 2014, we started with, with one team and this uh, team was compromised of all the people who actually were cheering for, for this approach. So everybody wanted to go to AWS and, and wanted to do a new way of continuous delivery, who wanted to do, you build it, you run it, and also believed now is a good time to actually learn Scala. Well, I believe we were eight engineers at that point in time. And, and this was the, the first team. And we we picked out of the out of the monolith the, the one capability which we could provide value if we would change it. And that's also uh, from an architectural perspective, a, a good blueprint how to actually carve this out of the monoliths, including the data synchronization and all of those things that need to be done between uh, the data center and AWS. And, and pick this one as, as the, the, the first capability slash product to pull out and then started from scratch. So installing on the new shiny MacBook, because we, of course, were using Windows laptops before that, running on .NET. Uh, we got new shiny MacBooks. We created an AWS account, installed IntelliJ, uh, started fiddling around with, with Scala, and started with the deployment pipeline on AWS, and started the infrastructure automation. So everything required to actually deploy this um, this new service into AWS uh, with a continuous delivery mindset and, and uh, you build it, you run it, run it uh, concept. We built in the, in the first team from scratch and put, put the first service into production. And I believe after three or four months, um, we just added the second team to the project. So we, we, we felt familiar enough that the, the, the foundation was laid out so that we could actually pull in a second team, picked uh, the next capability. So at that point in time, we were not finished with the first one, but we, we were just confident enough that we are on the right track, that we can pull in more capacity. And then we started with the, the second team. I, I then also uh, changed uh, to, the, to the second team. And I believe half of the people from the first team went to the second team. So that the second team then actually has the experience from the first team. We filled up the gaps in the first team and then we're running with, with two teams. And by that time, the, the infrastructure components that were shared between those two teams, we, we just distributed between the teams. So 
some of them uh, were running the, the delivery pipeline. The other team uh, was doing the infrastructure automation and, and, and stuff like that. So we just pulled things uh, into half and, and continued with that. And sometime later, I believe half a year later, or it could be three or four months, not certain, we pulled in two, two further teams. So we, we just doubled up again and distributed the people to, to those uh, four teams. And at that point in time, we then also learned that uh, now with, with four teams, it did not work anymore that we could just simply rely that we will stay on the same path and, and the same mental model. Too, too many new people came onto the project. And this is where also the, the architectural uh, transition happened, where we uh, moved to a more principle-based approach, where we set up our architecture principles. This is how we actually want to do things. Um, this is the idea behind our thing, uh, how we approach things. So that um, the, the, the growing number of people could actually stay on, on the same track and be uh, aligned with the, the vision behind what what we laid out first. And yes, with, with the growing number of, 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 of people, uh, of course, the coordination effort uh, increased, uh, the, the attention in the, uh, within the company increased because before that it was just one small experiment. Now it was a, a bigger initiative. This was at a point in time where also operation became a little bit nervous. What's going to happen there? Before that, they could just say, hey, they're trying something on the cloud. Don't worry, this will fail. Uh, they will come back to our beautiful data center. <laughs> uh, but then they, they realized, hey, this is this is not going away. We need to do something. Like, and like learn also... Scala. <laughs> like, maybe we should learn Scala. <laughs> That was actually not the reaction, but what what we did, and this was was originally also the plan, that uh, in each of those teams, uh, one from the previous operation team uh, or operation department. So this was actually, as we all talked about, this was was a was a silo there. Um, we pulled in one of those operations guys into the teams and embedded them so that the team has also the, the operational capacity. Of course, they needed to learn AWS. And we also initially pulled in those who were also in favor of AWS. So the, for the first round, this was rather uh, rather easy because there were a lot of people who wanted to join there. Over time, this, of course, become became more difficult because uh, you have the VMware Guru and uh, the Oracle DBA, and uh, they also they all knew if if this this train continues, uh, I need to either change my my role or or need to need to find uh, a different different approach to my to my future career. But a lot of people took on took on, and this is also how over time naturally uh, we. We moved from Dev and Ops to DevOps because yes, the 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 the, the management commitment was in a way that in, in the end uh, the the operation part as it used to be before would be gone and would would be more or less uh, be gone together with the data center. You said a a couple of things there that I thought we could branch just a little bit, maybe not too far. But first of all, um, any comment on, it sounded like you, you really didn't like strangle the monolith. You sort of just replaced 
uh, functionality or were you developing brand new services that didn't exist at all even on the the monolith implementation so we we did both so the the, the first thing we, we pulled out that this was actually a, a classical strangler so the the thing we pulled out there existed before in, in the monolith and uh, as a result of bringing that service in production uh, so the definition of done for that one is uh, it's served out of AWS and it's removed from the from the monolith the second part this was also driven by business requirements uh, was was actually something uh, new a capability that did not exist before uh, and then uh, was actually yeah it was actually integrated back as ui composition and and, and some other things that was integrated back into the monolith and, and uh, rather soon so just the timing was not perfect there but um, we uh, later translated this also to be integrated with uh, when when we pulled out the corresponding capabilities into AWS, but yes, this was a new capability, and all I would say, ninety percent of the capabilities we pulled out of the the monoliths were, were following the Strangler pattern. So if if you look at Autoscout, uh, for those people who don't know what what the company is doing, it's it's like AutoTrader. So my understanding is the same, and you you put a listing. Uh, on, on the site and the listing is then there is some some magic happens to the listing but in the end uh, from a consumer perspective you can search for the listings you can bookmark the listings and you can get notified if, if new listings matching your your search criteria appear on, on the site so it's from a domain perspective rather a simple thing that happens there and a big chunk from from a scaling perspective and from uh, where the uh, user is interacting is the whole search capability and that was after the first two we pulled out which could be seen in the area of, of harmless uh, we pulled out the the big search capability because uh, this this made sense because there we needed the elasticity this was helpful because people are searching during the day they're not searching in the night so we could properly use the elasticity was there because there was quite some load in, in there and also the the data architecture behind that was uh was 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 not that complicated because all the the back office processes on the on those listings stayed in the data center and then we had a data pipeline forwarding the to be published uh, listings uh, to aws using sqs and later we put in in kafka also and and Sitting on top of those uh, uh, ready-to-be-published listings were the, the search capabilities and, and the other things I just mentioned. And this, of course, was also a, a strangler pattern, but not too complicated from an, from an integration perspective. And just only conceptually, the, the biggest the biggest thing we needed to deal with was, was the, the the tight integration in the in the in the Oracle database around all the listing back office processes because there were Oracle, PSQL, triggers, everybody was munching around on, on the data and very few people actually knew the life cycle in, in, the, in the first seconds when listings were entered until it was actually ready to be published because this was all hidden in, in database code and, 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 and some services that, that worked on that. And that was actually 
from a from a decomposition perspective the the hardest challenge to actually pull those things out of each other and this was not a fault of the microservice architecture but this was a fault that the thing wasn't uh, modular to begin with so this was a, a mess and we already knew that and whatever we would need to do to to improve the situation would be a re-architecture anyway so that that also made sense to pull that over but this 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 was that part was not finished until i i left autoscout interesting and lots of work just uh amazing amount of work involved in that and a lot of clients that i meet and you know they they think that somehow something that they built over 20 or 30 years can be um, broken into microservices in a few weeks or something. And they're, they're really miffed, I guess, or crestfallen when they find out that, no, it's really not quite like that. Now, when you said that you removed or that the functionality or the capability was removed from the monolith, I'm guessing C-sharp, I think was C-sharp. When you say it was removed, do you mean literally you were able to carve the code out of and remove it from the code base in C-sharp? Or did you just sort of disconnect the things that reached into that code? Like, for example, the first microservice that you built. So we actually also uh, removed the corresponding code from the monolith. Yes. Hmm. That's quite a feat in itself, I think. Because sometimes you just have to leave things running in in the monolith because so many other things are dependent on it that you have to build up quite a body of microservices before you can actually point all the user interface or, or much of the user interface for some capability or a few in, into the microservices. It's just it's an interesting challenge. And, and, and uh, as you already mentioned, a, a challenge that you typically underestimate because if, hmm. if if you just look at the capability on a whiteboard and, and reason about who is actually calling whom from the best of, of your knowledge and then you estimate uh, the entanglement and how long it takes to pull things out, there is always one more caller that's calling into something which nobody is aware of that this was built five years ago. And uh, when you then actually believe, now I can remove uh, that capability from 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 the monolith, yes, there's still somebody using it. And then you have to go there also and you, yeah. But I believe there is no yeah. way around it. So there's, it's not funny and it's, and as I already mentioned, most of the problems come from, from the big ball of mud. It's not the, 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 the problem of being in, in, in a monolithic code base. It's just everybody calls everything as he, so fit either either in code or via APIs, and you just create a mess. And at some point in time, you need to clean things up. And and you you mentioned another thing too that caught my ear with the way that teams were formed and and grew um, within the new architecture, the microservices architecture. And you talked about seeding, you know the. Like you, you start out with one team and then you see the next team with experience. And I often get the question, how do we scale domain-driven design? And uh, first of all, well, maybe that's not necessarily the best idea. You know, you, you can always use uh, strategic design for all microservices, but maybe not all microservices deserve the tactical modeling prowess that's needed for 
a core domain or something like that. But the fact that you have to have experience on teams to grow, and if even if you bring in, you know, a few very experienced DDD consultants, you know, to to help you, they can still only really work with a few teams themselves, and you know, help them gain ground. So it's really best to have those people working with with experience and then themselves carrying on. And this is Conway's law, right? Every interview that I have, it it always just boils back down to Conway's law that people and conversation, communication, collaboration is what goes into architecture. What do you think about that? Yeah, first of all, so not every every uh, service or rather few of the services were built with uh, with the tactical DDD patterns. So the domain, in many cases, did not warrant uh, going going for 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 the tactical patterns. And yes, Conway's law and how to actually scale the organization and get people not only up to speed but get them aligned behind the original idea. So if if you just ramp up the number of people too fast. Uh, they don't know what to do and and, and uh, as a chief architect as one person you cannot act fast enough to to fix all the things that will go haywire then if, if people just make up their mind so the those those principles and and the, and the core learnings how how things are wired up and why they are wired up like this and what's the the, the core idea and the principle behind it is it's important, and this is also one of the things where we actually, after after some times in the in the project, we came to the conclusion that we not do part of the of the, the scaling process uh, again. So initially, we had this, as you described, this the seeding process, and going from one team to two teams uh, worked quite well because you have. For people who know everything, and for new people, and 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 they can teach the others, and and this is, this is you you don't need to be explicit about it. That this this just happens. Um, but at uh, at at some point in time, the the amount of new people, the knowledge gets diluted. Yes, and, yes. and uh, I I would pick a pick a different model, uh, more of a of a boot camp model. So new people get into a team that knows how things are done. And you have a team of, of, let's say, seven or eight people, you inject two new people in there, who and they get assimilated in a positive sense. They know how things are working. And then you can shrink down the team again. And if we have perhaps two or three of those teams where you have seated those new people in, and then you carve out a new team out of, out of the grown bigger teams and then you start injecting new people into those teams again so that they go through a proper learning and that the ratio of people who know the topics uh, to the ratio of people who are new to the topics is not overwhelming for the people because then also the that team cannot produce anything meaningful if there are uh, if there are constant in a in, in a constant learning mode so but of course, this slows the potential speed of ramping up down because you need deliberately put people in there and give them the time to actually learn. But I believe we are talking about people and the, this is in, in contrast to scaling on AWS, 
not something that that happens automatically. You you need to take your time for this. I don't know how much you use Scala across all the microservices, but just to give a little of my experience around Scala is um, when I started using Scala, I did view it as a better Java, but I, you know, I viewed it as a much better Java, not just like a marginally better Java. But there, it's said that there are two kinds of Scala developers. There's the Scala developer developer who's really happy that they'll never have to use Java again. And then there's the Scala developer who's bitter because they aren't coding in Haskell, <laughs> right? And, and, and the thing is, is I, I was m very much the first one, but then I ran into too many of the second ones, you know, the second kind, and it just became, to, to my mind, very toxic. How did you prevent the or maybe you didn't, maybe it worked out there where you just said, okay, let's go so functional, so to speak, that that any new hire we have who even knows Scala well will not be able to read this code. <laughs> Do you know what yeah. I mean? So, so of course, we uh, the Scala decision was also the most controversial. So um, we, we could also have picked... Java, this would be more familiar for a C-sharp developer to, to go from C-sharp to Java. But at that point in time, we believe people who have picked C-sharp over Java in, in their career made this as a conscious decision. So forcing them back, in quotes, um, to Java was, was not a good idea. And, uh, and, and C-sharp at that point in time gained some uh, some functional capabilities, so it moved in that direction. Some people were actually looking at F sharp at that point in time. So Scala was 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 in the end uh, what what we settled on. Uh, and then most of our people needed to learn Scala from scratch. So there we we had internal uh, Scala learning groups. We had external uh, support to actually learn Scala, and there we already took care as we, as we already knew that Scala has a problem. There's no idiomatic uh, Scala. Every, everybody does it slightly different. And, and, and we, we put an emphasis from the beginning that we stay on a, on a same middle ground and, and try to bring people in, in, into that direction. But as soon as we also pulled in some uh, consultants from, from service provider and, 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 uh, People became more familiar, more familiar with Scala. Of course, uh, all of those Haskell uh, ideas also came up. And then we had a, uh, I believe it was Scala Guild at that point in time, which then more or less tried to to, to align the, the usage of Scala within Autoscout so that, uh, that, that we are not having... Uh, too much difference between the teams on, on this language uh, as we this 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 was stated in, in multiple blog posts from from companies moving to Scala because this is this was a known issue that you can go bananas with Scala yeah and and you know when when you have to ship s software and you have very real deadlines with very real billionaires waiting for this stuff to you know, like, be delivered, 
and you have a few people sit you down and say, well, let me explain Kleisley arrows, you know, or what, or, you know, and I, and you're just like, yeah, but that's all interesting, but we just really have to ship code. And I think you'd agree that my code is actually not wrong, but if you want it to be wrong, you'll get me to use the, you know, cat's library or what, you know, whatever, uh, Scala Z or anyway, nothing against those and nothing against the people who, who can work together and actually ship software that way. But it is a real challenge to prevent those sort of, you know, the mayhem of, of two, you know, more interested in, in extreme functional than shipping software. And uh, yeah, so I'd never talked to you about that, but I'm not at all surprised that you hit that uh, wall, so to speak. Yeah, and yeah. actually, this was the, the language, this, as I already mentioned, it was controversial. But in the end, it, it also had a positive effect on, on our hiring efforts because uh, we were then a go-to shop for people who wanted to, to liber uh, deliberately make the transition from uh, O to more functional languages. And they now not only could do this on, in their spare time, but they now would be get paid to do it in, in Scala. Uh, in, in, uh, in my new job, they used to do Java and I tried a different approach and do a more, uh, less aggressive change. We, we just moved to Kotlin, which uh, has few of the problems of Scala, but has also not the, the, the uptake in, in, in potential that, that Scala has. So this is, this is from, a, from a culture and who are you actually able to hire? There, there, there are subtle differences. If you make such a language decision, you get different people. And I just uh, got the, the news from, from somebody who I worked with at, at Autoscout, who also uh, moved to, to the new company and is now moving back to Autoscout because he wants to do Scala again. So that's, <laughs> he, he just can't live with Kotlin. So there you go. And of course, uh, it, it has an effect that you, you, you get slightly more engaged and perhaps potentially a little bit more brilliant people with those uh, uh, those languages. Uh, and then you need to take care that they don't go into mayhem mode. So, yeah. Yeah. Interesting. Yeah. More, more Conway's law. So, okay, let's, let's shift gears here a little bit. So in, in 2014, so maybe during or uh, the, this whole break up the monolith into microservices, you started the um, Munich microservices meetup and, I ended up speaking at that. I don't know. I think I've spoken there three or four times. And I think the last time you got a you got a chuckle out of that I actually contacted you and said, "Hey Christian, can I speak again <laughs> at the meetup?" And and well, you know, I was uh, shamelessly promoting uh, Elingo Zoom platform. So anyway, but uh, tell us a, a little history about the about the meetup. Yeah. So as I already mentioned. Uh, when, when Martin Fowler's blog post about microservices came out, we saw, said, now what we are discussing on the whiteboard has finally, finally has a name. Uh, and of course, still after the blog post, a lot of discussion ramped up in, in, 
in the new circles and uh, of course not every question we wanted to have asked, uh, answered was answered in the blog post because it was also on, on, a, on a high level uh, still uh, but we betted uh, our company on doing microservices so we just said let's let's build a Uh, self-helping group uh, we, we just do a meetup and hopefully other people will, will, will come and we can discuss uh, our approach to microservices and it started small so the first group I believe this were, were nine people then we ran up to, to 13 people and this was it was a brand new topic and, and people were engaged and then uh, somehow it, it It grew and uh, almost everybody who at some point in time wrote a book, a blog post or mentioned microservices in the, in the first two years um, showed up at the meetup at some point in time. So this was, this was uh, uh, quite, uh, quite a, a great experience that, and, and, and this is how the speaker community works. So they, they, they just love to talk. Of course, everybody has something to promote. That's that's uh, either it's uh, employer, his new book, or whatever. But in essence, uh, those speakers give so much to the community, and then sit there in the evening with a beer and pizza, and and having those um, those high level conference speakers speak at, at your meetup. This this was this was a really nice thing, and I believe we we are now at uh, at 61 meetups. Of course, it came to a screeching halt uh, during the, the pandemic. I, I don't, I, I joined some online conferences and meetups and yes, this is, this is a viable alternative, but not something that I'm interested in organizing. So I need beer and pizza and, and, and talking to people. So this is, this is the fun in there for me. Of course you learn something, but it's, The, the talk is just to 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 start a conversation that's happening afterwards. Uh, you you learn something and you discuss it and then you learn even more. So hopefully we 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 can uh, uh, ramp this up soon that that people can confidently meet again in closed uh, areas. And yeah, so that's the and and of course. Uh, We learned so much in, in with those uh, 61 meetups. This, this is just we we were able to to shine a light on on all aspects around microservices. So yes, so this is this was happened as a small thing and became something rather big. And I'm I'm glad that people like you find the meetup uh, that inspiring that you show up by yourself. This this was this was really a, a nice thing that happened there. Thank you. Thank you. And I really have to say that the original uh, space that you were in, sort of like a, a tunnel, was it was where a beer was stored yeah. at one time, which what does Munich have to do with beer? <laughs> <laughs> But th that was a very interesting yeah. place. Now, of course, you hold it in your new employment yeah. offices. Yeah. And that, I mean, they're very nice and probably even a bit more room, I think, in the new place but that old uh, space was very yeah hmm, what do you say romantic or something yeah yeah actually so if if i look at pictures from meetups in in, in the in the original area uh, if if i'm rebooting the microservice uh, meetup i 
I'm, I'm strongly considering to go back to to the original area. So it, it has two advantages. It, it has a it had a, a really good charisma and feeling to it, and it was more central than our current location. And this would be then more a courtesy to the audience to go to such a, a nice venue and, and not pull them uh, into your your office building. Of course. The employer pays for the meetup, so therefore a little bit of promotion is also uh, due there. But having the the, the nice location uh, is something I would also strongly look forward to be there again. Yeah, and I think it's a good thing for other meetup groups, you know, meetups to to consider is, um, you know, the venue is really important. If you can do something about the venue, um, it's worth it. And so let me just, you know, we're kind of running on time here, but uh, sort of running out of time, but um, hey, we can continue if if we like, and people can put it on triple speed or something. <laughs> but, but, um, but, you know, so, okay, you have this meetup on, on microservices. Did you ever discuss monoliths at all? Like, and if so, how did you go about doing that? So we actually had I had I had to look it up again the the name we had one particular meetup that uh, that uh, stood out for me there it was called Majestic Modular Monoliths uh, it was uh, held by Axel Fontaine and he was actually a strong advocate and it was a really good good meetup and it it it, it re- reflects also my my thought process and it, we 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 discussed similar things when 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 I talked about the autoscore situation uh modularizing the monoliths is 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 just in itself something that that's viable to do and uh, microservice is if if you do it too soon or you do it for the wrong reason as with all of those architectural decisions is not the the right answer per se you this you need to be aware what what's your context uh, what are your alternatives and uh staying with the monoliths if uh, has a, has a lot of advantages axel was was advocating this this quite strongly and we also had a second meetup um where actually the journey from this this was a, a startup and they actually went through the proper thought process, I believe. And, and they said, we know that we will end up with a microservice architecture. And uh, the people uh, working in that startup were actually working before that at a company where they were doing microservices and they were also speaking about those microservices already at the microservice meetup. And then some people did a new startup and then talked about how they started with the monolith. So this was, <laughs> and, and they uh, did it for the right reasons because they said, okay, uh, we are exploring the domain. We actually don't know how to carve things up. This is, this is uh, we need this part to be soft. We need to be able to change this. We are learning. This is not a domain where everything is laid out and you can just pull out the DDD sample book and, and, and it's written down there how the context should be carved up. We, we need to learn this. And uh, we also don't want to have all the, the additional complexity in the infrastructure deployment, having a, a message bus or something in there. We just leave that for later if we tackle tackle the first problem. But of course, they they 
in the beginning also thought about proper modularizing the the first thing because they knew they will split it up into microservices and when they were certain enough that they, that they know that they knew about their context and how things uh, were measuring up and they needed the ability to scale and work at individual parts uh, separately and use the advantages of microservices they then started uh, splitting up the thing and, and and i believe this is this this is how you should do it and this was quite a quite a good uh, meetup uh, as they presented this yeah and and thank you by the way for being willing to read our strategic monoliths and microservices book that you know i i thought of you immediately with um having you read at least a late copy i know you're too busy to be a, a formal reviewer but um thank you for taking time to read that and uh so really um you, you reflect a lot of experience in those areas so if you were to describe even in your current work uh the enterprise architecture that you're working on in a platform how do bounded contexts of domain-driven design help you there or how do you do you use them even Okay, so first of all, the the, the 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 most important part because when I joined the company, they didn't thought about that. So they built microservices and and just used nouns or whatever to to actually carve up um, their their services. And then yeah, there there were of course uh, the the deployable artifacts and all of those things didn't make, uh, match up. Uh, with um, um, how we then uh, after after introspecting it would would see um, the context map. So that's what that was the first part to actually reverse engineer uh, how how the domain and the context actually look like. Uh, we, we built uh, uh, context maps for that to to get that insight how how things are playing and. and there were also then some 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 changes needed to make the thing things more sane and, and put things into the right places. Um, what I really uh, emphasized at that point in time, and and this is also part of the problem with the with the term microservice. Uh, there are a lot of potential definitions, and I don't want to be in. In the argument to re-explain what microservice flavor we are actually doing, uh, this is this is too cumbersome. So for that intents and purpose, we, we we switched to the bounded context as, as as a granularity we typically talk about, and this means that we we also have a multi-account uh, strategy on AWS. So every bounded context was moved into its separate AWS account. So they, what 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 I found there was they had a microservice architecture, but a monolithic infrastructure with a microservice runtime in the center, which is also no fun at all. So there we 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 carved out the the, the microservices and, and grouped them together into uh, those uh, AWS accounts and. Uh, centered all our our infrastructure, so how we uh, skin our repositories into projects, how how the pipelines function, and how the teams are organized. Everything was centered around the bounded context, especially on an AWS level. So, and there was 
one of the principles we came up with is that the bounded contexts cannot use any AWS lower level to communicate with each other. So no, no uh, network or queues or anything like that between them directly, but they all need to have uh, proper interfaces. So uh, the, the, the APIs for, for those bits and pieces where we actually do REST or HTTP APIs, and then uh, um, the, the underlying Kafka where events and, and uh, data change and IoT streams are exchanged between those microservices. So that in, in, in the end, the, the account boundary was a reinforcement of, of the context boundary with the respective interfaces being clearly defined. You can, can only interact with this bounded context via this API or via Kafka messages everything else is, is forbidden and and this this had quite a lot so it, it steered away from the microservices discussion and put uh, the, the the bounded context in in the center of of, of all of those discuss discussions again a lot of thought a lot of discipline actually right and getting people to work together to to agree on uh standards and instead of you know everybody does their own thing and and you know few people can pick up from where they left off um so i think it's a good investment for you i guess one last thing that i wanted to explore today it sounds like we need to actually have another uh podcast sometime and but um you know being a chief architect being the head of architecture and enterprise platform and so forth. These are kind of, um, yeah, I would say, roles that a lot of software developers or new architects or senior architects would like to find themselves in. How does that work, Christian? How, like, if you if you were to explain what is what does a chief architect actually do, and 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 I just have to say one thing from what I take from auto scout you were a very hands-on chief architect whereas a lot of chief architects that i meet are very much like you know talking to ctos and cios most of the time trying to influence them to do things rather than you know hands-on software so anyway tell us about those roles and if someone was kind of wanted to aspire to those what would you suggest okay so I cannot comment on the general role of, of the chief architect. So I have only experience with myself as chief architect, but, uh, um, but I can try to describe what my idea behind uh, this, this role is and, and how I'm living it. So first of all, yes, the, the hands-on part got pushed away. The, the added uh, responsibilities, uh, leading teams, being responsible for, for, for the tech platform, business platform, and for the architecture. Uh, sadly, I removed me a little bit from, from hands-on coding. Uh, I'm still involved in, in all of those technology and architecture discussions, but, but the hands-on part, actually, I, I, I cannot do currently. Um, nevertheless, uh, on, on hobby projects or once in a while, um, I'm, I'm reading code. So, so that, that still stays. 
and I'm, I'm navigating through repositories if I, if I want to find out something without asking people because the, the truth lies in the code and not in the in the answer. Um, so, but with that out of the way, the for me the 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 role of the chief architect is to to give the 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 vision the. Uh, translate the business requirements in, 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 into architecture and strategy. But yeah, mostly about the vision and enabling uh, a culture where, where people can see the, the, the structure in there and, and actually uh, can follow through. So guidelines, principles, those kind of things. So for example, we have, so yeah, let, let's start with Stefan. So I, I believe I've copied that one from, from Stefan Tilkov that there I see three kinds of, of architecture. So in, in the simplest way, there's the um, domain architecture. We already talked about that one. Then there is the, the macro architecture, which is on what platform am I running? Uh, how are the interfaces described? So everything, uh, how in, in, in our world, those bounded contexts connect and what are the standards and guardrails, security, those kind of things. Then there is the microarchitecture. This is more or less what happens within one of those AWS accounts or within one of those microservices. And the the chief architect's responsibility is to, in, in my opinion, is to be in, in charge of, of of fostering the the domain driven part, so that the, the context map is is, uh, is is present and and uh, used. By, by all teams when, when they are, are doing those discussions and it's constantly evolved uh, and, and they use the strategic patterns of, of DDD, then together with the teams define the macro architecture. So what are those guardrails? What do we, we believe in? What kind of interfaces uh, uh, do we use uh, and that force? And then on, on the micro architecture, uh, give the, the teams guidance, but also the, the freedom and to, the autonomy to make a lot of decisions there on their own. So what we are doing is we are regularly building a, a tech radar together with, with the lead engineers and input uh, from the teams, which we then also derive the, the, the tech stack from. So what's what's in adopt in our tech radar? This is our, our current tech stack we use so that the teams have guidance, what we already learned, what, what we like, what, what uh, we, uh, we put on hold, but still have uh, the responsibility, but also the freedom to make a lot of decisions to, to pick and choose. So we are not setting forth, you need to use MySQL or you need to use Postgres or DynamoDB. Uh, you can use whatever. There are people you can talk to if you're not certain about your decision, but the team knows their use case best to make those kind of decisions. So that's 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 not on a, on a, on a macro architecture level. So that's what uh, I'm working on. And then of course the the principles. So we we have uh, taken our time to uh, address the things which are important for us, so that everybody is aligned behind those. Uh, for example, we have a principle. The same we also had at Autoscout. AWS first. So we want to be cloud native. And if we want to use infrastructure, we use the infrastructure from AWS with all the caveats that come with that. Of course, we have a lock-in and uh, uh, those things. But 
we, we try to stay with those uh, services that's, that's provided by AWS with also with the added part, we, we pick uh, the services as much uh, in, in the high level area as possible. So the, the higher up, the better. We don't, we, we are not using EC2 anymore. We are, we are using Fargate for containers and always moving up level looking, of course, uh, also using using serverless. On, on the flip side, we, we don't roll out something like Kubernetes or, or things which, of course, you can run Kubernetes on, on AWS and, and there is also a managed service for this, but it's 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 not required to do that and that there is a, a, a higher level abstraction available on AWS. And this is one of our principles and every engineer knows this. So this is, and we have only a few of them so that in the day-to-day -day work, people know how how Rio ticks and what kind of architecture and 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 uh, how we progress things without needing to handhold them all day, setting up the frame, setting up the vision, and then watch beautiful things happen. That sounds good. Yeah, beautiful things happen. I have to say, I hate to stop talking right now, but. Um, I think we probably should, but this just gives us another reason to uh, have another conversation for, for people to hear more later. And let's encourage everybody to make beautiful things happen. And part of that means knowing what you want to do, right? And what you need to do. Understand that well and stick with it. Christian, thank you so much for joining us for the podcast. It's always a pleasure to speak with you, and hopefully we can meet up again in person someday soon-ish. Hopefully, we'll, we'll see. And uh, I look forward to talking with you again. Thank you very much for having me. It was a pleasure talking to you again. And yes, that this, this would be uh, either a follow-up, but I would love to have a follow-up in person and in perhaps... On each side of, of, of the world, perhaps we, we can meet again in, in Munich, have one of those Bavarian beers and some Schweinshaxe or something like that and have a good time. Just after all this uh, pandemic trouble, this would be a, a nice thing to look forward to. And I really uh, I, uh, I feel honored that you picked me for, for, the, for the podcast and, and hopefully... Uh, some of the things I, I babbled along are interesting to people. So thank you again for having me. They're going to be very interesting. And, and I, I can assure you that. And it was also an honor for me. So we'll see you next time. See you. If you enjoyed this interview, please subscribe and stay tuned for more. This podcast is sponsored and produced by Kalele makers of Domo Roboto and the Zoom platform. To learn more, visit kalele.io. That's K-A-L-E-L-E dot I-O. Thanks for listening.